the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. They say to pastors that if you want to make your congregation feel guilty, preach on prayer or evangelism. And I think it's because those two disciplines are so clearly commanded in Scripture, yet we don't do it enough. I want to ask the question, when it comes to prayer, why is that? I think it may be because we are praying a lot, but we still know that 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. So we know that even though we may be praying a lot, we could still be praying more. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, it could be that we're not praying that much at all. Yes, life is busy. But I think we also have the luxury of having modern medicine and technology. Those things fix a lot of problems today that we would otherwise need great faith in prayer to deal with. We take over-the-counter medication. We can contact someone instantly. And so a lot of those things we wouldn't say, well, I really need the Lord to help me here because it's just being done all the time every day. But we need to be like Martin Luther who once said, I am so busy, I am so busy now, that I find if I did not spend two or three hours each day in prayer, I could not get through the day. If I should neglect prayer but a single day, I should lose a great deal of the fire of faith. We tend to think the opposite, don't we? We have so much to do that we relegate prayer to if I have time, as I'm falling asleep, maybe on my commute. We really need to turn to God for everything. He lived in a time that was 300 years before Thomas Edison. So he didn't even have electricity in his home. And so surely all of these little things that we take for granted, he needed to pray for because it might not happen. My forehead feels hot. My neighbor died the other day because he had a fever. This is the kind of time he lived in. We pop a few pills that we pick up at Walgreens, and we're good to go. But despite all the modern conveniences, I believe we need to rely on God on everything as well. Not just in saying we have faith and trust in His sovereignty, but in prayer. And this morning, James will show us the importance of prayer, not just in general, but in specific situations. And to see that, I invite you to turn with me to the end of James chapter 5, Verses 13 through 15, we're coming to the end of James, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. If you've been with us since the beginning, it may be hard to believe that we just have a couple more weeks here in James. This morning we'll cover verses 13 through 15 of the last chapter of James, where he writes this, Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, 
and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. This morning, I want to offer you four occasions for prayers of faith. And we won't see this right in the beginning, but in verse 15 towards the end, he says a prayer offered in faith. We understand that all prayers are to be offered in faith. In other words, not just lip service, but trusting in who God is and His ability to answer that prayer, whether that answer is what we want or not. Four occasions for prayers of faith. The first occasion for prayer of faith is in the midst of difficulty. In the midst of difficulty. Verse 13a, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. So, the first occasion for prayer is when you are suffering. And we are very well aware of what suffering is. And here, James uses a word that refers to any sort of misfortune or trouble, experiencing any sort of difficulty, so really trials of any kind, except for illness. And we know that only because he addresses illness as a separate category later, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. We're all familiar with the variety of situations that cause us distress, whether they are external physical circumstances or internal personal issues. We all know the feeling, sometimes physically, but more often, I believe, emotionally, inside of us. The fear, the discomfort, the anxiety, the wanting it to end. So what does James and really the rest of Scripture say is the solution? Pray. And you say, well, yeah, that's obvious. We're Christians. We pray. We always pray. In fact, even if you have a hard time keeping a consistent and disciplined prayer life, you know that everything changes when you're in a trial. We tend to pray more. We tend to pray more consistently during difficult times because we want that suffering to end. When we talk about the simplicity of what James says here, which is, if you're suffering, pray, we see very clear and precise instruction. And what I mean is this. In times of trouble, prayer is not one of many equal options that you have. James is saying it is the first and foremost option. Pray first. Go to God first. In other words, to make it practical for you, before consulting doctors, consult God. Before telling your small group, tell the Lord. Before sharing with others, share with your Savior. I think that's all common sense to the believer. We understand this. If not in practice, then at least in theory. And if it's just head knowledge to you, then you need to cultivate now. If you're not going through suffering right now, you need to cultivate now a mindset that will quickly and immediately turn to God first when difficulty comes. You've heard me share with you this principle before. Be ready now so when the opportunity or the situation arises, you're not fumbling around, wondering what to do, even delving into sin, but you do what is right immediately. You need to prepare now. You can't say, well, this isn't for me because I'm not suffering. I'll deal with it when it comes. Learn now. Prepare now. Like the faithful soldier. He doesn't say, well, if we're ever attacked, then I'll learn how to use this gun. No. He is always, every day, doing drills, running, firing, practicing, aiming. And so it's the same thing with, for example, evangelism. 
Know what you're going to say now. Don't just say, well, if I run into someone who needs the Lord, then I'll figure out what to say. Most often we then say, well, I didn't know what to say. Rehearse it now. Know what to say now. And all of these things that may only occur or apply in specific situations, prepare now for that specific situation. And here, what we're saying is prepare now, train yourself so that when difficulty comes, the first thing you do is to turn to God in prayer. But I want to point out another aspect of what James is saying here. Although essential and the main point, praying before all else, is not the only issue at hand. See, when James says we, quote, must pray, he's not just saying you have to pray. He's also saying you are not to do other things. Specifically, you are not in the midst of suffering to complain. You are not to retaliate. You are not to seek vengeance. You are not to blame shift. You are not to get angry. You are not to seek the means of the world to deal with that suffering. Turn to God first. And by the way, when I say means of the world, I mean drinking, drugs, money, immorality. I'm not including things like medicine. Okay? Turn to God first and don't turn to sin. And I would say this. It would even be wrong to just internally grin and bear it with quiet resignation. That is not a prayer of faith. You must pray. Why do we pray? Well, yes, because it's commanded. But it's commanded because we are to direct our suffering and solace to the only one who can do anything about anything even when help and solutions come through others, we know it is within the grace, sovereignty, and provision of God. And it comes to, when it comes to prayer, that is one of my favorite statements and reminders. God is the only one who can ultimately do anything about anything. Yes, He will use doctors. Yes, He will use pastors. Yes, He will use each other to encourage. But ultimately, it is God. So why not turn to Him first? God is the only one who can do anything about anything. And we're actually reminded of this truth in the midst of unthinkable difficulties in the lives of the psalmists. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 50. We know that many of them, especially David, wrote these psalms in the midst of situations we would never endure. Great, powerful men. At that moment as he wrote that psalm, looking for him, seeking him. Soldiers looking in caves, looking for him to take his life. And in the midst of these, he wrote these psalms and other psalmists as well. Psalm 50 and verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me, says the Lord. Then there's Psalm 91.15. Psalm 91.15. He will call upon me. And I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. You see the beauty of this? This isn't just God rescuing us and go, okay, you're out of the ditch. Now crawl in the the dust. No, he lifts us up. He honors us in a way that is fitting with those 
whom he has died for. Then back to Psalm 30, verses 1 through 12. If you got tired of flipping, please turn to Psalm 30. We're going to read the whole thing. Psalm 30, verses 1 through 12. A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And you see the repairing, the restoration, the saving of this individual, in this case David, because his goal was to glorify God. In other words, his prayer was not a rote prayer. It was not a prayer of legalism. It was not a prayer of obligation. It was a prayer of faith. And speaking about the only one who can do anything about anything in the context of trials and suffering, we also know that he is the God of all comfort. Think about what brings you comfort in difficult times. Perhaps not hypothetically, maybe even in a recent trial. What brought you comfort? It could be something as simple as your favorite blanket, a dish of your favorite comfort food, a quick hug from a friend or spouse. It could be something less simple, like financial stability. But either way, now think about when you got those things. Think about the ease you feel, the sigh of relief from those things. Now look to God and realize He is greater than all of those things. In fact, He provided them all. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. This is a passage that not just what we're going to read, but more in this passage, but we're going to read verses 3-5 through 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. My favorite passage in the midst of difficulties. My wife and I have turned to this passage when we have come back from doctors with serious diagnoses from our, in our kids. We, when we've come back from the doctor who told us there's no heartbeat, to turn to this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. When you tell me about a difficulty you are going through, 99% of the time, you can bank on me going home and praying this prayer. Lord, comfort them in the way that only you can. Yes, others help. This is why we're here. This is part of why God created the church, that we can comfort one another. This is part of why he has revealed his word to us, so that we can find comfort directly from his lips. But we have to understand also that directly from God, there is a supernatural, miraculous, abundant comfort that goes beyond anything any human being can give you and, frankly, beyond anything any of us can comprehend. The God of all comfort. In verse 4, and I could preach a whole sermon on this, the beauty of this is seen in not just being comforted, but the beauty of fellowship. It is, we are told that he allows us, in, in, in compliance with other scriptures, he allows suffering. And if you turn to him and don't waste your suffering, which we'll talk more about in a second, that you will then not just grin and bear it and endure it, but God will allow you to use that to comfort others because other people are going to go through the same thing. Early on, when we just planted this church and we got the serious diagnosis of our middle son of all these issues, all these things that we never even heard of, we said to each other, look, we're a young church, not just because the church itself was young, but most of the people coming were young. I said, it is inevitable that someone is going to have a child that goes through something similar and we can then come alongside them as Christians, as a pastor and his wife, and say, it's going to be okay. We know what it's like. Turn to the God of all comfort. I know how difficult it can be. I don't know how difficult it can be for some of you. But understand that whatever reasons that are unknown to us, whatever challenges, however we may have endured the trial, glorifying God or with a little bit of sin, Understand that you may have the opportunity to glorify Him by comforting another person and letting them know, sharing your story, even if it's not rainbows and roses, and says, I understand it's frustrating. I understand it's hard. But listen, I lost a child too. I lost my dad too. I lost my husband too. I had cancer too. And we can comfort, by God's grace, other people. Okay. Mini rabbit trail sermon over. Back to the point. God is the God of all comfort. There are many names of the Lord that we can cling to when suffering, and we do. He is the sovereign. He is the rock. He is the sustainer. But friends, do not forget God of all comfort. And by the way, all comfort reminds us not only that he gives us a comfort that is unique to him, that is supernatural, that comes only from God, but all comfort includes any comfort you may receive from his word, from others, from just a 
a kind gesture from a stranger. We all experience that. We're down and someone does something seemingly mundane and it's just encouraging. God of all comfort, that came from Him. In these difficult times that you may experience, it may also be helpful to know what to pray for. We've covered the who to pray to and why. Let's talk about what. And this is very simple. Pray for strength to endure the trial in a godly way. Pray for the end of the trial. And very important and often forgotten, pray that God will use that trial for your spiritual growth. In other words, that you will not waste your trial. That's gold right there. And we understand some of the hardest stuff has the greatest reward, right? You ever on a sports team in high school or college or professionally? The hardest workouts gain the greatest reward. And we understand this in school, academics, our jobs, raising children, getting married, whatever it may be. And so it is too with trials. There's an opportunity there to grow. And we saw this back in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Let me read that for you. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't know about you, but I would like to be perfect. I would, be, I would like to be lacking in nothing. And James connects it to trials. That's how it is accomplished in the plan of God. But to not waste your trial involves your own effort as well as God's working in you. And what that means is to simply, simply seek and strive for the end goal that we just saw in James chapter 1. Perfect and complete holiness and godliness. This cannot be accomplished without prayer. This cannot be accomplished by a focus on self rather than God. This cannot be accomplished with sin, complaining, gossiping, blame-shifting, anger. It is accomplished through prayer, godliness, and endurance. How many trials have you wasted? How many trials have I wasted? Golden opportunities that God Himself provides to grow you and strengthen you. You don't need to know why the trial exists. You just need to know how to respond rightly for the sake of His glory and the perfect result in your own life as a follower of God. And before we move on to the next occasion for prayer, I want to highlight a simple, thus simply overlooked point. James says, let Him pray or He must pray. Although it is important that we share our prayer requests with one another and that we fellowship closely enough that we know when others are suffering, we must not forget to pray for ourselves. We are loving, kind, gracious people. And sometimes that hurts us because all we pray about is for other people. You must not forget to pray for yourself. Well, that's our first occasion for prayer of faith, for prayers of faith, rather, in the midst of difficulty. Let's move on to our next one, which is often the most overlooked in the Christian life, in the midst of delight. In the midst of delight. He then goes on in verse 13 to say, Is anyone cheerful? 
He is to sing praises. Cheerful simply means to be happy. It means to feel good. It's that joy we have when things are going well or when something good or good news comes our way. The NIV says, happy. King James says, merry. This is more than just whimsical emotion. This kind of joy and cheer can occur regardless of physical and present circumstances. We just saw, consider it joy when you encounter various trials. And we know that as believers, we can have joy even when the situation is terrible. And just as it is easy and natural to cry out to God in suffering, it is very easy and natural to forget God when things are going well. There is often a great temptation to focus on self, to pat oneself on the back when there is good news. But we must, just as in suffering, turn to God first. Not to social media, not to the bearer of good news, not even to those who have been praying for you. Give God the praise and glory first. And how do we do this? James says, sing praises. This is the Greek word from which we get the English word psalm. Sing psalms. You know, singing is such an incredibly unique and powerful tool that it has become synonymous with church or church service, unlike any other organization. When you think about it, there's a lot of music in the world. But it is uniquely Christian in that we sing as an integral part of who we are as worshipers of God. Many of you had team meetings at work this week. Did you open in song? Oh, maybe if it was someone's birthday. But there's no singing of praise. There's no singing to ask for help to get your work done, to praise the CEO or whatever it is. It is a uniquely Christian thing. And it makes sense then that our response to being cheerful is that we sing out to the Lord in thanksgiving and praise. And this will not happen if there is no acknowledgement that God is the giver of all good things, as we saw in verse 17 of chapter 1 of James, that He is the ultimate one who cares so deeply about us that He will even allow hardship among His children to make us more holy and perfect. And one of the reasons music is so powerful and dangerous, by the way, is because it moves us. The music triggers emotions while the lyrics resonate with our situation, our lives. Don't forget the lyrics. Some of you have been in churches where the lyrics mean nothing or they mean something and they repeat the same sentence 50 times and they're trying to move you with the music. The music is, and don't we say this in the music world, an accompaniment to the lyrics. The lyrics are most important. That's why we sing hymns every Sunday because the lyrics are deep and powerful. And so we need to, be, we need to recognize that when it comes to music. Music triggers emotions. Lyrics resonate with us. You know it's not uncommon to have a song and someone says, oh, that's my song. Or perhaps more commonly for couples to say, oh, that's our song. Because of a special moment shared over that song's particular, particularly pertinent lyrics. You never see someone grab their spouse and go, honey, it's our song. Beethoven's fifth in C minor. That's because it's the lyrics. It's the substance of what is said that hits us. 
And again, the melody and the music are simply the icing on top that bring the memories and the feels. And in the same way, when we cry out to the Lord in joy through singing, it's because of a reflection of the truth that He has accomplished, and it must be truth that we sing back to Him. Whether it's simply a thank you God or the lyrics of a hymn or praise song or even just a scripture-saturated song that you come up with on the spot, we are called to respond to happiness with the highest form of praise, singing praises to the Lord. Even when we sing on a Sunday morning, it is to praise Him in response to what church means. We are saved. We are a family. We are together We are here. Even in the midst of difficulty and unpleasantness, we leave the world if just for an hour and come together as a corporate body to sing praises together in corporate worship. You know what the beauty of singing together is? I mean, we're talking about singing on your own as well in response to being cheerful, merry, happy. But together, we form a chorus, but it's an understanding that everyone else singing this understands the lyrics because of the Holy Spirit and means what they are singing. And we are joined together in camaraderie in Christ, also known as fellowship. And the more you truly understand and rejoice in what you have in Christ, the more sincerely and frankly louder you will sing because it's not about you. It's not about what others hear. It's not even about what you hear. Like any form of sincere praise, it's about the person you are praising. And in this case, the Almighty God. In the end, the combination of music and lyrics create a powerful combination for worship that involves truth and emotion. So my friends, sing out to the Lord, for He is good. Thirdly, our third occasion for prayers of faith is in the midst of disease. In the midst of disease. Verses 14 through the beginning of 15. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now we get to someone who is sick with some sort of physical illness. Something to keep in mind. Being sick, as I mentioned earlier, was a much bigger deal and trial in the first century when James was written. Much more than it is today. There was no modern medicine. There were no modern medical facilities. You didn't even have microscopes. Now their understanding of the human body was foundational to what we know today, but archaic and often wrong compared to what we know today. Simple illnesses could be deadly. And undoubtedly, back then, people died from many illnesses and diseases that they were unaware of. Just called it an evil spirit or whatever it may be. Some could have been cured just by eating some citrus or some other simple remedy, but they just didn't know. And James says that anyone who is sick in the church is to call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint that sick individual with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I think this passage is so self-explanatory, let's just move on. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) This is actually one of the passages that causes a lot of confusion, especially in regard to the anointing with oil, 
which some churches and denominations still practice. Perhaps even more confusing, if you've come from a church like this, that we don't do it. In fact, in recent weeks, someone has asked, what is your view of that? Why don't you do that? I have been in ministry for 22 years, and I have never anointed anyone with oil. I've anointed French fries in oil, but I don't think that that's something different, okay? So let's unpack this. First, the sick person is to call the elders of the church to come and pray for them for healing. This is not a reference to elderly people, but the office of overseer, elders, pastors. And we know that by this time in the early church, the office of the elder was already well established. So there would have been elders among those who are listening to James's letter being read. Quite likely that it was one of the elders that was chosen to read it to the church. By way of reminder... Elders are spiritually mature men who have fulfilled the requirements of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, part of which uh, Chris unpacked for us so well over the, the past couple of weeks. They are officially recognized and put into the position of authority and leadership of the local church and believed to be ordained by God. And because they are, in essence, the mature leaders of the church, they are to be called on to pray for healing much like a family would call upon the dad or the parent, the more mature authority figure within the family, to help. This is an interesting reminder, not only of the duties of the elders in the church, but also of the connection, trust, and reliance the congregation is to have upon their elders. The whole of the New Testament including verse 16 of this chapter, calls all believers to be, praying, to be praying for one another. But in the establishment and divine order of the local church, there is a special place and role for the elder. And my friends, it is not limited to preaching sermons and making administrative decisions for the church. In fact, a foundational pattern that God sets in the early church is when the apostles designate seven men, often considered the prototype deacon in Acts 6, to take care of the widows who are being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to turn there, but it's in Acts 6, verses 2 through 5. And the reason they do this is they say in verse 4, so that we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word prayer, and the ministry of the Word. Elders are to fill all of their time with prayer and the ministry of the Word. And if they are not vocational elders, in other words, for example, Chris has a secular job, he is still to commit much of his free time to this. That is his ministry as an elder in this church. And so, in the leading of the Holy Spirit, these apostles said, if we just focus on feeding all these people and doing all this stuff, important stuff, care for the flock, especially those who are destitute, which would have been the orphans and widows back then, well, when are we going to preach? When are we going to study the Scriptures? When are we going to pray for people? And so they designated others to do those things. And this is what our elders are striving to do. We are just, we're not doing anything special. We're just trying to do what the Bible calls us to do. 
There are many, many churches, and I would argue most churches in America, where the elders meet together mostly for issues of administration, such as budgeting, scheduling, hiring. But few anymore are praying specifically for every single individual in the church. The elders of Grace Church of the Bay Area do that every time we meet. In fact, we do that as a rule before we talk about anything administrative or financial. But, despite multiple requests, we don't know how to pray for half of you. We want to pray for you. And we still pray for you, but it's very general. Let us know how to pray for you specifically. You can even do it on your phone. We've got a little QR code and all that. It's in your bulletin right there. It's very simple. We're going to be praying for you. This is how I put it. We're praying for you regardless. I know that there's some of you here who are like, well, I'm probably not on that list. You're on that list. Okay? It's not just members. It's not just people who have been here for more than a month. You're on the list. Our list is getting long. I'll tell you this. We average 95 to 105 every Sunday. I just counted. There's 128 people on that list that we pray for individually. And if we're going to be praying for you anyways, you might as well let us pray for you specifically. Okay? Well, let us pray for you. We need your prayer requests. I mean, how would you feel as a parent if your children had some sort of need and you didn't even know about it? Maybe you can't do anything about it, but you would like to know, wouldn't you? We all have great need, and it is our, as elders, privilege and duty to pray for them. And although James is speaking specifically in the context of illness, this is a good reminder that we must all be praying for one another And you should all be having your elders pray for you as well. The idea of doing Christianity alone is foreign to the Scriptures. The idea of doing Christianity just with your spouse or family is foreign to the Scriptures. Let us work with you. Let us pray for you. And if you're visiting, praise God, go back to your elders and say, are you praying for me specifically? If not, why not? Now, does the prayer of the elders ensure that the person who is sick will be healed? No. Does it ensure that it more does it ensure it more than if anyone else prays? It actually might. Firstly, because you will be obeying the Lord not only in what is being said here, but also in the structure of the church and submitting to the authorities God has ordained over you. Second, because as we'll see in verse sixteen, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And to the best of our abilities and according to the standards and requirements of Scripture, we will make sure we only have elders who are righteous men. Sometimes we can be so on fire for God that we focus on one aspect of Christianity to the detriment of another. So spiritual, we feel, that we actually go beyond what the Scriptures say or ignore others. And why I bring that up here is because there are people who say, I love the Lord, I'm responsible for my own walk, 
I don't need other people. I don't need to share my prayer requests. I don't need people to encourage me. But then you are disregarding other commands of Scripture that call for fellowship, that call for the elders to come and pray for you, and things like this. We are a family. There is a structure. Just like children, sometimes they wish they weren't part of that structure. But God has ordained it. Let the elders pray for you. The privilege and responsibility that elders have over the congregation is further emphasized by the next part of the verse, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing is seen often in the Scriptures, and when we look at how else it is used in the Scriptures, it can clue us in to what this practice was in the early church. Going way back, we know that in the Old Testament, the servants of the Lord, namely the Levites, the priests, were anointed as a symbol for consecration, for, sim- for service to the Lord in the temple. Even the physical objects in the temple were anointed for the same purpose. When we look at the context of James, we know this is not what he's talking about. It's not saying the elders are to anoint with oil to consecrate them for some purpose in the church. So we can take that usage out of that. Something else we know is that the oil James would be talking about would be the commonly used olive oil. Again, without the existence of modern pharmaceuticals, olive oil was frequently used for many type of maladies. In fact, there has been a resurgence of the use of olive oil for various physical issues among those today who are pursuing more of a homeopathic approach to health. Back then, Olive oil was actually the best medicine they had. It was used for everything. It was used as a skin conditioner. It was used for dandruff. It was used for, uh, for facial, uh, in place of facial creams like we would today, as well as just an overall general curative. They would even rub it on wounds. An example of this is actually found in the Gospels. In the infamous story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, obviously this is not the point of that story, But we are told that the Good Samaritan comes and he bandages up the wounds of this man who had been beaten up by robbers, and we are told he was half dead. So then he bandages this guy up, and then he pours oil and wine on the bandages because that was their medicine back then. Right? Even today, they say if you're wounded, you know, out when you're hiking and you don't have any antibiotics or anything, then you obviously have some whiskey with you, so pour the hard liquor on you, right? You've seen this in movies because it kills bacteria. probably adds other things that you don't want, but it's the best thing you could do. And back then, wine, but also oil or olive oil. Now, though there may be a hint of that in James, we know of many healings in the New Testament that did not require oil or oil from the elders, So this is not a necessary part of praying for healing. But there's a third aspect of anointing with oil, which I believe is what James is addressing here. And it is this. Although it may be helpful uh, from a physical standpoint, again, it was medicine for the elders to come and put the oil on them. Anyone could have done that if it was just to be used as some sort of salve or medicine, right? I believe what James is saying here to have the elders come and do that is to symbolize and convey the responsibility of elders to pray for, encourage 
and care for the saints. This would be a kind gesture and a gracious act on the part of their leaders, considering the importance and reliance on oil and considering that anyone could have done this and they would have been healed. Not just some family member or house servant, but the elder of the church sending someone to go find the elder without phones or email or cars and the elder walking over and doing this. You know this. Oh, you didn't have to come. But it feels so good that they did, that they're there. They didn't just send a car, they, card. They didn't just send a text. They're there. They may not be able to do anything for you that they couldn't do at home, pray, encourage, send flowers, but they want to be there. And so that's the idea there of elders coming to encourage in your presence, by your hospital bed, whatever it may be. Again, we are talking about not only the responsibilities and privileges of the elders, but the responsibilities and privileges of non-elders to elders. The trust that elders are to have in the Lord along with the responsibility the Lord has entrusted to them, is seen in that last phrase, in the name of the Lord. When it comes to healing, elders are to look to God as the source, not their own efforts in prayer, but the one who answers the prayers. Furthermore, all that we have seen is to be done by elders in a way that is consistent with God, who He is, and what He has outlined in His Word. That's what it means in the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean just utter the name of Jesus Christ. There's power in saying, in Jesus' name, amen. You are affirming that what you just said was for His glory and according to His will. And moving on, To verse 15, we see the result. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Restore can mean rescue, it can mean save, it can mean heal. In this case, it means to restore to health, which is in conjunction with the Lord raising him up, meaning to physically allow him to get up from the sickbed. There are a couple of points we need to make regarding this. James specifies that it must be a prayer offered in faith. We've been talking about this all along. In other words, trust that the Lord can and will heal as opposed to trust in some sort of spiritual result because you just went through the motions. Legalism, we call that. And when we pray in faith for anything, this is very important. Part of that faith is a recognition of who and what God is. As a sovereign God who seeks and works out the good of those who love Him, He may choose not to heal. It doesn't mean that we did anything wrong, but simply that God did answer our prayer of faith, and the answer is no. In other words, faith, we can pray with such faith that our faith says, God, I know you will heal him, but in the same time, our faith in his character and his sovereignty and goodness, we know that he may not do it, and his ways are perfect. I mean, even in Paul's life, we know that he prayed not once, not twice, but three times for the removal of the thorn in his flesh. 
And his prayer was not answered the way he wanted. That's 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul tells Timothy, he left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Trophimus being a friend, Miletus being the city Paul left him in. Now, it isn't said there, but we can assume that Paul prayed for his healing. And yet he's still sick to the point that Paul had to continue his missionary journey without him. Now, this is a good reminder of the difference between the believer's privilege and the Lord's control. If God controls the result, then it doesn't mean we were unfaithful if the result we prayed for does not come to pass. And this is true in anything we pray for from someone's salvation to another Christian's healing. Now, what is important is that we pray in such a way that you have confidence that God will answer prayer. And, of course, one of those potential answers is healing, but he may remain ill. And if you're praying for a Christian, that healing may be in death and glorification. By the way, another very short rabbit trail. It is very telling Some of you, most of you will get what I'm getting at. If you don't, don't worry. It is very telling that James calls on the elders to be present and pray for the sick. He does not call those with the gift of healing. It was phasing out by then. This also doesn't mean we don't go to a doctor or take our medication. Please do that. Most of us don't. Men, I'm a man. I'm putting myself in that. You understand. And as we have seen, this is in many ways, again, a great teaching on the responsibilities of elders as well as the responsibilities of Christians to rely on and call upon and use the elders of the church. Here's a, here's a simple logical, logical fallacy I'll give you, Okay? People say, I don't want to bother Roger. I don't want to bother Chris. He just had his eighth child. We want to we not give him some space. You know, Roger's preparing a sermon. He's very busy, so I don't want to bother them. Guess what? We're not busy. You know why? Because nobody's bothering us. <laughs> Let us be busy about the work of the Lord. Bother us. That's a bad word. It's not a bother. It's a joy. And here we also learn that elders are not just to be concerned about the spiritual health of their people, but also the physical health. You understand this. I'm not, I'm not like, ah, it's okay. Let him die as long as he's with the Lord. No, I, I'm concerned. I want you to be comfortable. I want you to be healthy. But that also means believers are to look to elders for help, not just with their spiritual health, but their physical health as well. Well, finally, Let's come to the fourth occasion for prayer of faith. We've seen in difficulty, delight, disease, and now in the midst of disobedience. Look at the end of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Stick with me. Okay? Don't cue the Catholic priest confessional booth. Stick with me here. There is a hermeneutical principle known as the analogy of the faith. Okay? As with all things seminary-related and theological, we like to make it sound very fancy and complicated. All this means is that no point of Scripture, 
when properly understood, will contradict any other point of Scripture. You understand this. It's also known as the harmony or the unity of Scripture. By the way, I've been thinking about this. Would you guys be interested if I did a very brief or general, uh, just a two-Sunday, mini-Sunday school teaching you the basic principles of hermeneutics, which is the principles, the science behind uh, the interpretation of Scripture? Okay, we'll see if we can get that going for the three of you. No, there's there more of you. A lot, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of heads nodding. Don't worry. Um, so, the reason I bring up this harmony of Scripture or the unity of Scripture is that we know that nobody else can forgive salvationally another person, right? We need to forgive sins committed against us, but we can't forgive their sins so that they are saved. So we know that's not what James is saying here, even, if not especially, regarding elders' prayers. Rather, what James is saying here is that it is quite possible that the physical illness of the individual in this passage may be a result of sin. Not always, as indicated by the if here, but quite possible. Again, this doesn't mean that every time you're sick it's because of sin. This is also not saying, and when I say that, that sin can, uh, illness can be a result of sin, I'm not saying that it's a direct result of, sinful, of a sinful act, like liver disease from drunkenness or an STD from immorality. What we do know from Scripture is that God disciplines His children when they sin, and one of the ways He does that is with physical illness. In fact, what I refer to and often read to you every time we take communion in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 30 it says this, after it says, do not take the elements in an unworthy manner, right? You guys are familiar with this. It then says, for this reason, in other words, there are people who are taking communion in an unworthy manner. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That's death. God has struck dead his own children because they have taken communion in an unworthy manner. This is serious stuff. Job's friends assumed that Job's afflictions were a result of sin. They were wrong in Job's specific case, but they understood that this is how God works and may be a very real possibility. Now we know from the rest of Scripture that forgiveness of sins must involve repentance, a prayer, we call it the sinner's prayer of confession, asking God for forgiveness. Part of that may involve the elders praying for repentance, confronting sin, and thus ultimately leading to them repenting and God healing them if that illness is because of sin. But the reality is, if that person who is sick because of sin, if they themselves do not repent, then no, oil, no amount of oil or prayer in the world is going to make a lick of difference. They need to turn to God. We can't repent for them. Okay? So, we see that when it comes to prayers of faith, there are promises here for the physical body as well as for the soul. Well, 
We've run out of time. Four occasions for prayers of faith in the midst of difficulty, delight, disease, and disobedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us an open means of communication to you. Whereas so many false religions in the world, they fear praying to their gods. Even the great religion of the world prays to the Virgin Mary instead of to you. And yet we know from your scriptures that you want to hear from us. You demand that you hear from us. May we pray without ceasing, but particularly in these times, may we understand the importance of prayer, the importance of prayer of the elders, and the importance of your grace and goodness and sovereignty in not just allowing us to approach you with our sinful lips and sinful hearts, but to have an intercessor and to know that though it may not be what we want, you always hear and you always answer Thank you, Father. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.